What is the chief image of Buddhism? We probably know fairly little about Buddhism, but if you have a picture in your mind that depicts this religion, how would you see Buddhism? I think we might see it in the statue of Buddha. His posture, if you have ever seen it or can, pic- can picture it, he is seated, his legs crossed under him in the lotus position, that position of meditation. His back is straight, his face is forward, his hands are folded peacefully in front of him. And what is on Buddha's face is more telling than anything. Buddha's face, the eyes are closed. There is a hint of a smile on his lips. This statue, I think, ably emphasizes, epitomizes the agenda of Buddhism. Buddha taught that we live in an endless cycle of life and death. And we just need to come to terms with life and death. This is the way that it is. We've perhaps seen some of the instruction to those who suffered through this tsunami tragedy and how Buddhist teachers are teaching them to cope with it. Understand that you are just part of the cycle of life and death. It happens to all of us. And to those who have been taken in death in this tragedy, they're just coming back into another life soon. They'll live again. And you can rejoice if your loved ones were halfway good people because they'll come back as halfway good people in the next reincarnation. Cycle of life and death, life and death, and it may never end, or it may. And if you learn through meditation to detach yourself from this world with its suffering and its difficulty, you can come to a perfect state of peace and happiness by being severed from it all and entering into nirvana where you escape that cycle of death. Now think of this serene statue of Buddha, eyes closed, a slight smile on his lips, detached from this world of suffering and difficulty, having entered nirvana historically. Now think of that serene statue and compare it to the ultimate image of Christianity. What is the picture of the Christian faith. It is, I think we would say, the cross of Jesus Christ. We could put with that, and perhaps overriding it all, the empty tomb. But I think as we think of an image of Christianity throughout the world and throughout history, it has been the cross. Think of the dramatic difference there in that image. Buddha's goal was to escape the world of pain and suffering and death. Jesus Christ's goal was to conquer it. Jesus Christ did not come to escape this world, but to fix it. He came, he invaded it, in fact, to ultimately change it, to liberate it from pain and suffering and death, and to bring it back into the fullness of the creation that it once experienced. Creation. God created the world good. We know as we look in those early chapters of Genesis that there was the attack of Satan, and that followed with the sin of Adam and Eve, and the physical world, the entire cosmos, including, of course, their souls, were plunged into depravity, into ruin, 
And so our experience in this life is one of death and suffering and pain. Jesus Christ came to turn it all back again, to bring it back to that Eden condition, to restore Eden to this world. He came as a revolutionary. He came as an invader. He came to change things and to bring them back. The Bible's code phrase for this agenda, if I could put it that way, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to his sovereign reign and particularly to the sovereign reign of Jesus Christ who will liberate this world from sin and death and who will rule the nations of the earth to the end of the earth and bring glory to his Father as he delivers that kingdom over. And forever and ever God will reign over his people. This is the kingdom project. This is the kingdom agenda. It is not an escape from this world, sucked up into some peaceful nirvana forever, but it is the restoration of all that was good. And Jesus is involved today in that project. And as we come to Luke chapter 13, we find Jesus pressing that very agenda as he reverses the effects of the curse. He reverses the effects of the curse for one woman, beginning at verse 10 as we come to that place in our study. But having set that up, I'd like to step back, if I can, just for a couple more moments and set up what Luke is doing in this entire book. I think it's very instructive to us. If we could just stop for a few moments and consider. I probably should read here, first of all, verses 10 through 13, just so we set up the miracle that Jesus performs here. Let's look at Luke 13 and verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now, there we will come back and consider this text. Let's step back a little further and look in larger scale. Back in chapter 4 of Luke, we have here the first synagogue visit that Luke chooses to develop. And I think it's important to draw our attention back here because as I'll say, as we'll look again in a moment, at chapter 13, this is the last synagogue visit that Luke chooses to develop. So we're, we're, we have bookends here. The first synagogue visit and the last. We're looking at the last today. If we go back to chapter 4 and verse 14, we look at the first that Luke chooses to develop. Now we notice in the verses that precede that Jesus was involved in other synagogue visits at, at various places. Uh, in verse 15, he taught, this is 4.15, he taught in their synagogues, plural. Now he develops one synagogue appearance at verse 16 of chapter 4. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 21, Jesus says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And how does the synagogue of Nazareth respond? Verse 28 of chapter 4. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard what he said, referring to Gentile conversion. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Let's just say that was a chilly reception. First synagogue visit that Luke chooses to record. Now we move forward back to chapter thir- uh, uh, 11, rather, chapter 11, Luke chapter 11. What I want to highlight here is the last miracle that Jesus prefor- performs before chapter 13 that we'll look at here in just a moment. Luke chapter 11 and verse 14 Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him, asking him for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then, notice this, The kingdom of God has come to you. As we come to chapter 12 and verse 1, we enter into a warning discourse that takes us all the way through chapter 13 and verse 9. And the essence of all of this is found, we could just epitomize it in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 13, where Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. He then in verse 6 tells that parable of a man who had a fig tree, planted it, does not find fruit on it, and the caretaker of the garden says, give me one more year. Do you see what Luke is doing as he recounts the story of Christ? The miracles of Jesus are being rejected. They are signs that he is from God. They are signs that he has power over the realm of darkness. And Israel is excited, but they remain eerily noncommittal. Jesus says, I am showing you that the power of the kingdom is here. The rule of God over the realm of darkness that will reverse the curse and bring in eternal salvation, that rule is here. Now we come to 13 and verse 10, and the question that we must ask if we are reading Luke is this, 
is Israel going to yield? Will she finally respond to Messiah and to his miracles? Will there be a change in this course? The leaders hostile, the crowds excited, but noncommittal. We've read of the account there of this healing. Again, a Sabbath, again, a synagogue, now the last time that Luke will picture Jesus there and describe a synagogue setting. Verse 11, you notice there that a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit. This means that her illness is owing to demonic activity. Probably not possession, as her behavior does not indicate that, but some type of external demonic force is present in her life. A spirit cripples her. All kinds of discussion as to what kind of disease she's suffering from, but probably, the, uh, mo most likely, it could be muscular paralysis, but probably a fusing of her spinal column. And as this column fused, it fused bending her forward a curvature in her spine that had her doubled over and walking that way through life, shuffling her way through a miserable experience, an uncomfortable and humiliating position. Her appearance had to be hideous in some respects. In the culture of her day, she was treated as unclean, an outcast, there at the synagogue, apparently known there, it doesn't seem that anyone is particularly shocked to see her. At least that is not evidence here. But she's there at the synagogue on the day that Jesus is there at the synagogue. Bent over in this condition, she cannot straighten her body up. Jesus sees her. He does not recoil, but what he sees is a daughter of Abraham. And he says, woman... You are set free from your infirmity. Verse 13, he puts his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Can you imagine what this woman endured? If we could put herself, ourselves in her joy for just a moment. I think for even the elderly among us, 18 years is a pretty long time. Can you imagine being in this condition, fighting this disease for 18 years? And in one moment, for the first time in 18 years, you stand up. She has not been able to sleep on her back. She has not been able to look someone in the eye if they're standing in front of her. And on and on we could go as to the implications of this disease. And Jesus comes and she stands up. Praise God. I had a therapist one time who was trying to relieve some muscle problems in my own back knew that I was a pastor and told me I just do what Jesus did I heal with my hands I, I wanted to say well Jesus didn't charge so why don't you 
but I said in gentler words, no, you don't. <laughs> and I said to him, when Jesus healed, when he touched people, they were healed immediately. This woman stood up. He didn't put his hands on her and manipulate the muscles and begin to change whatever was going on in her body. Jesus miraculously healed her, and he did use his hands to touch and to identify with this woman in her need, but she stands up immediately. What does that say? To whom does she give glory? She realizes that this can only be the power of God. This is not physical therapy. This is not mind over matter. This is the work of God, an intervention of the supernatural realm in the present. And she rejoices in God's grace. But not everyone rejoices, verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And we need to understand the synagogue ruler was responsible for the order and the content of synagogue worship. And he's putting two things together and he enters into this dilemma. First of all, God's word says this. I quote Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work. That's number one. That's one issue. No work on the Sabbath. I'm in charge of what happens in this synagogue. Problem number two in this or the second issue here is that in this man's thinking, Jesus has just worked. He has just violated the law of God. So steaming with religious zeal, the ruler denounces Christ. The problem is this synagogue ruler is out of sync with the purposes of God. He is himself bent out of shape in the worst of ways. Let's think of it. He makes a command decision here. He's going to denounce Jesus. I suspect he might have denounced him had it been a Monday as well, or a Sunday, or some other day. But this is a Sabbath violation, and he speaks against Jesus. Think of this, though. Where did he get this power to heal? Do you remember what we read earlier? What did Jesus say? The kingdom of God has come if my power comes from God. So either it comes from Satan and Satan's kingdom is divided, or it comes from God and the kingdom of God is among you. That's what Jesus said at that earlier healing. Now this man should recognize that this instantaneous power to miraculously heal can only come from God. Question number two, on which day of the week did God give this power? The Sabbath. This man is out of sync with the purposes of God. And the Lord realizes this, sees it, and calls attention to it at verse 15. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! 
the chief ruler, as well as those who agree with him. Don't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Yes, we do, should be the answer. The rabbis of Israel encourage the compassionate treatment of domesticated animals. God is the creator. He gives to us these animals that we can domesticate. And as we do so, they are dependent upon us for life. It is right and good and gracious to untie them from the stall, to lead them out to water. In fact, the rabbis taught it's okay for you to pour them water and put it in a trough so that they can drink from it. Is that work on the Sabbath? No, because it's compassionate. We don't want our animals suffering, not able to drink on the Sabbath. That is not work, they said. The only thing is, you can't put a burden on that animal as you take it to water. You can't do two things at once, taking it to water and putting something on top and carrying that package somewhere. That's work, but you can water the animal. Jesus knows this. He says, I want you to think about this. Do you lead your donkeys to water on the Sabbath? Verse 16, his conclusion. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? See the compassion in those words. 18 long years. Jesus identifies with her ordeal and says, listen, you loose your animals out of compassion. Should I not loose this daughter of Abraham from her misery? They were out of sync with the law. Sabbath observance was God's will, but they were allowing the law itself to harden them against doing God's will. We need to be cautious that we not follow this pattern and that we read God's Word faithfully and think about careful application. I think of a parallel illustration from the late 18th century, 1792, English pastor William Carey proposed that Christ call for the disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel could only be fulfilled if each generation of Christians went into all the world and preached the gospel. To take the gospel to a heathen, pagan land where Christ had never been preached, was in Carey's setting and day a novel idea. In fact, it was a troubling idea. It might seem that William Carey was proposing to mess with the plan of God. God runs the nations. God runs the universe. We don't tell him where the gospel's going to go. Now, that would be unimaginable for us. It might be a matter of church discipline in this day if somebody held that view, that it would be wrong for us to take the gospel to a place where it's never been heard. But in Carey's day, this was common thinking. He's a young man, a young pastor, and he's gathered with an association of pastors one day, and the elderly statesman of the group says, is there anyone that would like to propose a discussion for our next meeting? And William Carey has written a small book that says, I believe we should go into all the world and preach the gospel. We should do it. Englishmen, 
proper Englishman from Northamptonshire. We should go into all the world and preach the gospel. Nobody thinks he'll say anything, but he stands up and says, I propose that we discuss my writing at our next meeting. Reverend Ryland, the elderly leader of the group, interrupted Carey, stood up in shock and said, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Mr. Carey, please be seated, was his message. What was Mr. Ryland's doctrine? Do you believe this? God does not need us to convert the lost. I believe that. I think that's biblical truth. He doesn't need us to convert the lost. God elects people for salvation. I believe that. The Bible says it. This man knew God's word, but he did not have, I don't believe, the mind of God. He had permitted theology to harden his heart to the needs of the unconverted. And what is it in our day? Take it home and chew on it. But we must be ever cautious that we not permit God's word to harden us against what he intends to do. We need to be careful as we develop doctrine that we do not stifle the Spirit. Now, I'm not speaking here of some subjective interpretation that we come up willy-nilly with whatever we feel the Spirit is teaching us to do in the moment. There is objective truth, but we do need to exercise caution as to how we apply that objective truth so that we do not stifle the Spirit of God. Every group of Christians in this culture, every group in this city has its traditions. We have our guidelines. We have the things that we've always done and the things that we've always believed. Let's praise God for objective truth, elevate it and honor it, and hold to it and defend it. But we must also ever be willing to rethink our doctrine. Rethink how we apply it. Never compromising what God has truly revealed, but ever realizing we don't know everything. And we need to be stretched. And we need to grow. May we be open to the leading of the Spirit. This man was not. Sabbath law is Sabbath law. No healing on the Sabbath. You, my friend, are out of touch with God. Jesus was showing the presence of the kingdom. He was reversing the curse. And this man and those who agreed with him had no time for Jesus and his works. That's frightening. I don't ever want to identify with such people. And only by the grace of God can we be open to his teaching to do what is right and to advance his cause as we are sensitive to the Spirit's direction. 
How do people respond to what has just taken place? This, by the way, was not what you call a comfortable synagogue service. This was a little rough on everybody. And there's very divergent response here. Verse 17, when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. The logic is really unimpeachable. You do work to take your donkey to water on Sabbath. All Jesus has done has put his hand on this woman and spoken a sentence to her. You have compassion on your animal. You do not have compassion on this woman. Remember, it's been 18 years. She needs to be released. They are humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. It's sort of a chilling verse if you read Luke. Because here are the leaders not responding in repentance, but responding merely in humiliation. And here are the crowds still happy still excited but not necessarily repentant now there's a lingering question here and I believe Luke is addressing that question in part as he takes us into the next verses and we're gonna look at them briefly here for a moment give me just a moment to set it up is Jesus really getting anywhere he's healing all kinds of people all types of things are taking place. No one is arguing that question. In fact, he's been creating food. Stilling the storm, his disciples know he is doing a lot of things, but is he really getting anywhere? I want to take you back to chapter 7 and verse 18. Is Jesus getting anywhere? Chapter 7 and verse 18. This is a question even John the Baptist had asked earlier. 718, John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? They asked Jesus a question, verse 20, and that very time, verse 21, Jesus cured many who had diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. What did Jesus say that shows? The kingdom has come. The work of God is here among you. Verse 22, so how does Jesus respond to John? He replies to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Is Jesus getting anywhere? 13 and verse 18. Then Jesus asked, and that then, I believe, is a little stronger than just then. We could translate the word therefore. So what... What, what Luke is saying is he recounts this. He's tying now verse 18 directly to the healing of this woman. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? 
What shall I compare it to? Now hold on there as he lays that question out, and let's answer that from a Jewish perspective. What is the kingdom of God like? Daniel already told us what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a big, massive ledge of rock cut out without hands, rolling down the side of a hill and smashing the kingdoms of the world. That's the kingdom of God. That's the picture we have by divine prophecy in the Old Testament. The kingdom of God is a cataclysmic, apocalyptic coming where God rules over the nations immediately and dramatically from sea to shining sea. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to mess with that whole image here when he says in verse 19, it is like a mustard seed. What? Proverbial for small things. A mustard seed. Apparently they didn't look for a needle in a haystack, they looked for a mustard seed in a haystack. Small, tiny thing. which a man took and planted in his garden, it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Hmm. You must understand, Jesus says, that my assault upon the rule of evil in this world will take time, and it will come about slowly. That is a new idea. Because the Old Testament does not prophesy such a thought concerning the kingdom of God. Again, it would be this cataclysmic, dramatic takeover of the world. I don't believe Jesus is canceling that Old Testament prophecy. Not canceling it all, at all. But he is saying there's something else here that you've not seen before. It's going to be like a mustard seed that grows into a tree. Time, patience, small beginnings. Verse 20, again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Leaven or yeast is placed in the dough and it slowly permeates the whole. So it will be with the kingdom program of Jesus. It will develop over time. It will not look dramatic for the foreseeable future. Christ's rule will grow slowly until the prophesied cataclysm comes, and it will come. Do not be set off the course by what you see here. One woman's back healed. The kingdom is among you, Jesus says. But it is going to take its time. It will slowly develop. Now, we don't have time to fill in a lot of really juicy details about what, in fact, he means about the kingdom and to fill out the whole theology of the kingdom of God. But I am taking this in a different direction from those who would see here an evidence of evil. Some would say that with the birds in the tree, that's a sign of evil. That with the leaven in the lump, that that's a sign of evil. And often these things were used as symbols of evil. In my thinking, that's reading too much into what Jesus is saying. 
I think he's just saying it is going to be something that is not cataclysmic entirely. It will be someday, as the Old Testament has prophesied. But it is this reign of Jesus, His work to reverse the curse, His redemptive purposes, His rule over the nations. There will be a time of quietness and small beginnings. These are those small beginnings. I differ with those who would equate this as, a, as Christendom. That Christendom will pervade the earth. And slowly but surely we will bring the kingdom in because we have basically created it on earth ourselves. But whatever precisely Jesus means here in this simple parable, He brings in this new mysterious concept, if we could use that phrase, this new idea that the kingdom will not be only cataclysm. It will be something else. And that, I believe, is something that they were seeing right there that day. The curse was being reversed. The call of repentance was there. And the effects of sin we're being changed. This is Jesus' project. Now, on this side of his death, the resurrected Christ reigns in heaven, and he is working through providence and through the work of his people to bring about his kingdom rule. In the future, Jesus will return and set up his righteous kingdom, and there will be in that day dramatic, climactic changes. There will be dramatic political changes. Do you re remember it? The desert will blossom as the rose. People will beat their plowshares or their swords into plowshares. There will be no one studying war anywhere. The lion and the lamb will live together. The child will play at the cobra's den. There will be no suffering and war. The effects of sin will be reversed. God bring that day. But it's not here yet. And yet Jesus reigns. He rules. He has conquered death and he is seated at the right hand of God. But there is this time, there is this season of small beginnings developing through time and God's plan to bring in this cataclysmic kingdom. I don't believe this is equated with Christendom, but let's say, what is our part and what are we doing? I believe that our part and our involvement in this is primarily at this point with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that the word of Jesus crucified and risen is a, an assault on the gates of hell? You can carry forward that assault 
as you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are bound in sin and destined for death because of the sin in which we find ourselves in depravity, we take the gospel of Jesus Christ and we assault the kingdom of darkness with that liberating truth. That truth is in your mouth. It's in your heart as a child of God. And you can assault the powers of darkness with it. Where did I start in prayer today? Where is Jesus' rule on this earth? Where is he? We must know by faith that he reigns, but we can also know that we are part of his conquering purposes as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. That message will conquer someday in his own way and purposes. But for now, we participate in his rule by saying that he is Lord. He conquered death and he is Lord. We assault the gates of hell in our day. How do you fit that plan? I may speak to some here, perhaps, who have not come to a place where you really are on Jesus' side. In fact, you may have found my comments about Buddha offensive, at least very boastful. There's all kinds of religions in the world and all kinds of people that believe all kinds of things. Who are we to say Jesus is the way? What Buddha has not done, what the gods of Hinduism have not done, what no god anywhere or prophet or teacher anywhere has ever done is defeat death. Buddha might think he can help you escape it someday after a million reincarnations. But no one has beat it but Jesus Christ. I tell you without shame, without apology, that I am a Christian for one reason, and it's an empty tomb. Without that, I'm not a Christian. But he did defeat death. And because of that, he shows that he is Lord. And you have to ask, if you think all the religions of the world are equally valid, you have got to ask yourself, what am I going to do with that empty tomb? And do I identify with people like the chief ruler at the synagogue questioning Jesus' powers, or do I submit to them and know that he is the king of heaven and earth? He beat death. He came here to conquer and to change, and we know that he will ultimately in the end because he's already done it when he defeated death. He is the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. And I would call you to submit to his salvation offer, taking your death and paying that price. He's done that for you. I would call you to embrace him if you have not. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, is this not our hope and joy that he has conquered 
Satan and death and hell. And we look throughout this vast world and we say, where are the people who acknowledge Jesus? They're so few and so far between, it seems. Oh, they're there. And he is there. And there's a day coming when the two are going to come together. And there will be that marriage feast of the Lamb. And there will be that renewing of the world. And it is now our short-term project to line up with Jesus here in a hostile world and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world. Just hang on, Christian. The day of cataclysm and dramatic change is coming. Right now, we're on this outpost to carry out the gospel. Let's do so with hope and joy, because Jesus came to conquer, and he did, and he will. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Father, to you for our Lord Jesus Christ and for this reminder of what he came to do. The small beginnings, despised, rejected, afflicted, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. People hid their face from him. There was nothing in him that drew people to him physically. But we thank you, our Father, for the hope of Jesus coming in victory. He came in humility. He came to die, but he will come again to reign and to conquer. And we long for that day as your people. Our Father, you who are in heaven, we hallow your name and we praise you for the Son who reigns at your right hand. And I ask that we might be faithful servants of his. We're asking this in light of these considerations this morning and in the name of our Savior. Draw to yourself anyone who knows him not as Lord and King and bring salvation to their hearts, we pray through Christ. Amen.